Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America. But this story is still unfolding. I'm Andrea Smartin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Hey, welcome to Project Recovery, a podcast about addiction. More importantly, it's about recovery, and it's brought to you by our friends at KnowYourScript.org. Go out there and check them out. Uh, without them, we wouldn't be able to do this podcast. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. He's a clinical psychologist. That That's a, actually a really cool title to have. Is it? I, I, I think so. So for people who don't know, what does it that's mean? That's why I went to school, what just does it, to sound cool. What does it mean if you're a clinical psychologist? Uh, that's a that's a decent question. So uh, you can get a doctoral degree in lots of specialty areas of psychology. In fact, I think the American Psychological Association has 34 designations. So most people don't realize that. They think a, a psychologist is just somebody who works with patients. But there's lots of different psychologists, including sports psychologists and, you know, industrial organizational psychologists and do lots of different things. Uh, clinical psychologists are the psychologists that get clinical training in mental health and provide usually some sort of clinical service. Um, I mostly do therapy with my clinical degree, but I also do a lot of neuropsych testing. And so, yeah, it's, it's a type of psychologist that works in hospitals and places like that. And so for the average person, let me see if I got this right. So you're the kind of therapist that can't prescribe drugs. Uh, no therapists in the state of Utah prescribe drugs. So, who- so uh, MDs and nurse practitioners, people with a medical degree prescribe drugs. So who who do I go see for antidepressants? Any medical prescriber. So you could go see your your fa- uh, family care doctor. Mm-hmm. They can prescribe them. Uh, you could go see a psychiatrist or a nurse practitioner who uh, who does prescribing. Do they work in conjunction with a therapist? Because it seems like they probably should because you're seeing a therapist, you're feeling like this, and they go do that because you guys yeah. specialize in that more stuff. And, more and more that's becoming the standard of practice. There's not a rule about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, for example, at the University of Utah Behavioral Health Clinics, we have integrated uh, professionals. So I was in a meeting this morning that had social workers and, uh, and psychologists. And then we also had psychiatrists and nurse practitioners. And so all of us provide different types of clinical services to patients. Because to be honest, you could fill a book of the stuff I don't know. And I think that's probably apropos. That's true for all of us. For, for the majority of the community out there. And sometimes we are thrust into this world that we didn't know we belonged, like the recovery world. And we yeah, don't know where to start. Sure. We don't know who to talk to. We don't know what's going on. And, and, and the and, time you need that is the most crucial time because your whole right. world is falling apart. Yeah, I think uh, most of us are familiar with the medical model of like getting medical services because that's been kind of the standard. I go to a doctor. He tells yeah. me what to do. He fixes it. I right. go home. But when you have a more specialized issue, it's hard to know where to go. In medicine, like if you had a problem with your kidneys or something, they know how to send you to the right specialist. And it's becoming more and more common for the family practice doctor to know how to send you for mental health issues or recovery types of issues. But that is only becoming the case. And so a lot of people in the 
community don't know where to go. I understand that. It's and it's kind of our fault for not being better at advertising it and making it more commonplace, but it's starting to become more commonplace where people know how to find, you know, therapy and medicine for mental health. Now, 70% of the time during this podcast, I'm paying attention. I, uh, yeah, that's generous. But yeah. So I'm going to give everybody a life hack out there. Okay. Um, you have said before on this podcast, if you have a loved one or yourself is dealing with some issues and you would like to see a therapist and you don't know where to go, sometimes just picking up the phone book or the or Googling therapists and getting on the phone and calling people, they are booked out. I mean, therapists are in high demand right now. Yeah, mental health in general is is pretty overloaded right now. But if you go to see your family practitioner mm-hmm. and tell them that you're dealing with some issues, sometimes they can get you in front of somebody mm-hmm. a little bit quicker than if you just pick up the phone. Yeah, I would say anytime you can go through a referral, and most of us can get into our family practice people a little bit faster, mm-hmm. and they usually know how to refer you. So especially... You have these uh, healthcare systems, and so if you have a doctor that works with the University of Utah Healthcare, then they probably know where to send you uh, if that's your insurance. So I would say instead of just pulling out the phone book, do they have phone books anymore? I think so, and they just do it for the advertising. They, do they? Okay, I don't think for I've that seen one, one law firm that wants the decade. front cover. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> uh, it's like a nickel now, probably <laughs> yeah, to get right? on the front cover. Um, but yeah, I think that's a really good. If you don't know where else to go, that's a really good place to go. Um, here in Utah, though, I mean, you can uh, call uh, places like Huntsman. Mental Health Institute, mm-hmm. uh, Behavioral Health Institute uh, of the University of Utah, places like that. And uh, we really try our best. If somebody calls in and uh, we don't work with their insurance, we try to make sure they can get a referral to somebody that will work with their insurance. We, we tend to try really hard not to just not help people. So any uh, any of those types of places, if you call them, usually they'll, they'll go uh, out of the way to help you find someone. And they do have a crisis hotline. Uh, 801-587-3000 is a crisis line. And it doesn't have to be, I mean, it can be an urgent need. You can call and say, this is what I'm dealing with. Can you give me some advice? That's a great line here in in at least the Salt Lake area where if there is a true crisis, they can even send a team of people out to the house to help with you. Certainly you can talk to a crisis worker on the phone and they often can direct you to where you or your loved one needs to go. And that includes recovery system. Do you need a detox? You can describe the situation and they can talk to you about places uh, around the state where you can go for detox. And then detox, often you can get a referral to a recovery center. That's how I found mine. Right. I was just sitting there and they said, do you want to talk to someone? I said, you bet. I am a little dismayed about how many people try to detox on their own. And so if you or a loved one is, you know, really struggling with alcoholism or other drug abuse, you feel like you're just kind of at your wits end that if you don't know where else to go, that's the place to start. Find a detox center and detox centers usually are very good at helping you for the next step once you're ready to leave. Now, uh, in my former life, I was a TV reporter, so I was known for asking the tough questions. (laughs) I'm going to put you on the, the hot tough, seat. You were your boy. Hard. I'm going to put you on the hot seat. Okay. How do you think Utah does right now when it comes to mental health and recovery? Very well, actually. If you look at a lot of the ratings around the country, there are a lot of places that uh, the access to mental health and recovery are much longer processes. We have, uh, fortunately, quite a few places in the state of Utah to go for 
uh, substance abuse recovery. Can we do better? Absolutely. But um, Huntsman Mental Health really is a gold standard uh, mental health facility in the Western United States. And USARA is and another great USARA one. USARA is a fantastic organization and really a great place. Again, a, a really a go-to sort of place to find where where you need to be to get the right sort of treatment for you or a loved one. Um, Utah does a really good job in healthcare in general, to be honest with you. I know that um, you know, since healthcare is so personal, there are a lot of people with bad stories about, you know, having not access to care and not getting good care. And I think unfortunately that happens everywhere, but, uh, Utah is, is pretty good. We have people all the time coming from the surrounding states to get healthcare, uh, mental health and recovery care here in Utah. I love it. Well, see, and that's what this podcast is about. I mean, a lot of times we like to focus on the addict. A lot of times we focus on the family members, but sometimes we just want to be a resource for those out there that might need help and don't know where to turn. Because sometimes when it all comes down, like we've heard so many people on the podcast and go, everything was going good until, and then it just goes bad quick. And when it does, you you, You you need some help. You need some resources. You know, what we're talking about right now reminds me of something that happened this morning. And I went into a Walgreens here in, in downtown, and out front was a table set up with some people that were uh, part of an organization that was an anti-bullying campaign, which kind of dovetails with one of our recent episodes talking mm-hmm. about uh, bullying and suicide. And so they were raising money for their organization. And, um, you know, that's the sort of thing you see in Utah a lot. There are a lot of places. They were talking to me about um, next week there's a big uh, – get together of similar organizations in the state of Utah to talk about what they can do to prevent bullying and suicide in in the state of Utah. And we've talked about how bullying not only increases a likelihood of suicide and depression, but also substance abuse, right? And so it's, it's seeing the connections between these things that affect children and adolescents and adults here in the state of Utah. I, that's one of the reasons I love working in healthcare in Utah. Um, I've worked in healthcare uh, in another state and it was fine, but Utah really, we have a lot of people in the community that want to uh, help the problems that exist. Well, that's why I'm so grateful that we're able to do this podcast. Weekly. And I gave them, I gave them your number. Did you? To, so that, uh, no, I actually gave him my number, but I want to see the panic in your eye. But but I thought we could get somebody from their organization on the show. I'd love to have him on yeah. because that's what this is. This is a resource for all those out there. Also a way to highlight, share hope of people in recovery and doing wonderful things. Now, I've already forgot her last name, but our guest today is Amy. Amy, what's your last name again? It's Clemson? <laughs> Clements Hadfield. Yes, Amy Hadfield. And uh, she told me I could just abbreviate it. And so I'm just going to go with Amy Hatfield. Yeah. 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 Because I will mess it up. That's one thing. That's my Achilles heel. I cannot remember names. You know, I'm not very good at that either, to be honest. I'm great at faces. I always know if I've seen somebody before, but I kind of struggle with it. So I've got to deal with my, I had to deal with my ex-wife, but she's my ex-wife now. And I've got the same deal with my girlfriend. I said, if we meet people out in public and I don't introduce you within the first 10 seconds, you need to reach your hand across and go, what was your name? And then it'll all make sense because it comes back. I'm like you. Yeah, I remember a face, teamwork. but I'm, I'm horrible at names. Yeah, that's and, that's a good teamwork. And just since we're putting everybody on the hot seat, yeah. my ex-wife and my girlfriend are horrible at that. They don't ever do it. They don't ever do it. <laughs> they, they hang you out to drive. So then I spend the next three minutes talking to this person, trying to remember where I know them from and how. And oh, then as soon as they that. walk away, I go, ah! Oh. <laughs> I've done that so many times. It's when your brain is forcing 
yeah. information, there's often a block. And then as soon as there's no force, then it just pops right up. Yeah. Amy Hatfield, thank you for joining us today. How are you? Thank you for having me. I'm doing really well. Thanks. So now um, you're not here because you're an addict, but addiction has kind of been in your life most of the time, right? Yeah. And greatly affected my life. So how does that, so before, we, and you're, you're a therapist. Yes. And you're a social worker. I am a social worker. Uh, you, so your resume's big and we're going to talk about all the cool stuff you're doing in the recovery world at the end of the podcast, but your journey to becoming a therapist and a social worker had to do and kind of stemmed from addiction that was in your life. Right. So how did, how did it all begin? Walk us through Amy's story just a little bit. So I am one of, I have a significant amount of siblings. My mom had 10 babies. Wow. And then my parents are divorced and my, I have three stepbrothers through my dad's marriage. So there are a ton of us. 13. Yes. Baker's dozen. Mm-hmm. And seven of us are biological siblings. So there are seven Clements kids. Mm-hmm. And three of us, we all have struggles with mental health, but three of us, ended up with substance abuse issues and I was not one of those three they're all younger than I am and the way our family is structured I ended up momming us all a lot and so I spent several years kind of being in charge of trying to figure out what to do parentified yes definitely parentified and so in um in 2015 my Brothers had been in and out of um, treatment via prison and the criminal justice system, but another sibling had an opportunity to go to treatment. Mm-hmm. And while they were in treatment, I was the family member who attended every family week. And For those who don't know, a lot of times when you're in recovery, they'll do a family day or a family week because, as we know, addiction isn't just – a disease for the addict it's for the whole it's family a family disease yeah. and so sometimes they want to you know family members want to know about boundaries they want to know what they can and they cannot do how they can support or, you know do and they to need help, help reduce you know um the recidivism rates of coming back into treatment over and over again because if you just go back to a family system that that doesn't support your recovery then you're you're much more likely to go right back to using right so so i think the family involvement in recovery programs has increased tremendously over the last decade or so because we see how tremendously valuable that is and it's crucial to the success yeah. of that yeah. addict yeah vital yeah. like it is in my opinion the thing yeah that so makes the difference you're attending uh family uh therapy with your sister yeah. i believe it is yeah acting like the mom mm-hmm yeah. I'm I'm the I'm the pseudo mom and and I'm getting my mind blown like this therapist is explaining family systems and he, he's talking about um homeostasis and and how like my family needs them to be drug addicts and how the disease runs how it is a disease and how the disease runs in families and how it's based in trauma. And I'm just sitting there with my mind completely blown because I just thought like, what is wrong with them? Why can't they just quit? 
Were you blown away when you found out it was a disease? I remember being totally. in recovery, and they told me this is a disease. And I go, wait, it really is? And they go, yeah. And I go, oh, I thought we just told people that so we could continue drinking. <laughs> that, been, right. that was my honest answer. Yeah. I was like, oh, I, it really is? But, oh. And wouldn't you say uh, that that's a prevailing attitude cultural attitude that why can't they just stop why don't they just try harder well that was my ex-wife she was like just stop and i go trust me i've been trying i mean i've made deals with the devil promises to god and i'm coming up short on every angle and often when i talk to people i'll say it may not be on the same level of severity but think about something in your life that you've tried to stop over and over and over again or try to start over and over and over again. It's not as easy as just saying, let's stop. And then that can lead into the conversation about it being a disease. Why is it so hard to just, you know, stop a bad behavior, an unhealthy behavior? Well, there may be underlying reasons, biological reasons, trauma-based reasons, why we can't just stop. I'll give you two right now that we're in the state of Utah that run rampant, and it's sugar and caffeine. Oh. Sugar mm-hmm. and caffeine. I mean, how many times have you when somebody on January 3rd ago, I gave up sugar, and they're not happy, they're angry, they're on Headaches. Yeah. I mean, it's well, just- Well, you know, in the state of Utah, if you want to drive through Soda Fix, you don't have to drive far. They're everywhere. There's longer lines at the soda shops than there are liquor stores. That's probably true. I, it yeah, is. I I'm guarantee sure. it. Yeah. That and have you ever tried to get an ice cream cone at a basketball game? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, ice cream. This is. I think Utah does. Don't we have? We have some stat on like having more chocolatiers in Utah than oh, anywhere probably. else, and ice cream and soda. So yeah, we're we're not uh, substance abuse free here in Utah by any means. But let's go back to you getting your mind blown in rehab as you're doing family therapy with your sister. So you noticed that it was a big deal, and it was a lot more than just stopping what you're doing. Right. So I learned about the disease model and I learned about family systems and I learned about we did therapy together. Right. And and processed like some of the pain that was in our relationship. And what I realized was that none of this information seemed to exist outside of the treatment center. I tell it all the time. Once you get inducted into this fraternity of addicts, then people flood you with information. And, you, and that's why I started this podcast. I go, how come this information wasn't available? And it probably was, but it was not talked about openly. It's always in backdoor conversations or whatever it is. But once you're into it, everyone's like, yeah. And then you're like, whoa. Well, I think there's a lot of uh, embarrassment and shame. Stigma. Right. Uh, stigma, yep, that, that holds people back from talking openly about it you know somebody might talk about you know they had their appendix out or you know the somebody they know developed type 2 diabetes i mean there are a lot of things that we talk openly about healthcare wise but if it if it's if it's around substances or mental health a lot of, or mental health for sure a lot of judgment misinformation stigma and i think for people that are struggling with it embarrassment and shame they don't want to bring it up but Fortunately, that's changing a lot, uh, thanks to a lot of people like Amy and people that work in substance abuse get the word out. So, Amy, you're there, and you're finding out all this stuff. May I ask your age at the time? 37. 37. Mm-hmm. And uh, You had a career, right? Yeah, I worked in the tile and stone industry, mm-hmm. and I was feeling unfulfilled in that world, and, and it had some things happen that had led me to believe that that wasn't where I belonged, and so I put it out there to my higher powers like I will do whatever I'm supposed to do just tell somebody tell me what that is shine a light on it <laughs> yeah. give me something and so and 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 so they did so I was 
I got to the treatment center for, you know, going into family day and I, I pushed the door open to go into the restroom and just got hit with this is where you belong. And I thought, well, that's a funny joke because I know nothing about this world. And I'm not an addict. Right. And, and, and I sell tile. And I got like three credits of some kind of college from the 90s that like don't mean anything. So I decided that I would – that what I needed to do was to go start taking social work classes at the community college. At 37? Yeah. Because you had a feeling in the bathroom of a rehab. Yeah. Totally. I mean, I mean, I mean, I'm, inspiration can strike anywhere, it's, anytime. It, it, for real. I, I know, but that, but that's what yeah. I'm saying is that I mean, in in your head you went, okay, you listened, yeah, and but, so you signed up for community college. Yeah, but it wasn't just that. So there were a lot of barriers. Uh, what I left out was that this whole like epiphany happened the day before Christmas Eve. Mm. So the semester starting like I don't know January fourth or something uh-huh. like soon and so i gotta figure out how i'm gonna pay for school how i'm gonna pay for my life all of this stuff right like and then how to get into school so they told me it was impossible who did slick okay the 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 advisor at slick was like this is not a thing did they sit you down and do the pros and cons (laughs) They, they didn't but they basically were like you're up in the night like, and that was because Solid Community College said you're not going to be able to get in. It's too soon. Most classes are full or yes. closed. Right? You got three yeah. co- college most, credits. Yeah. In the most 90s. people are, yeah. you know, several months ahead of time signing up for classes. Right. right? Yeah. So, so all the classes are going to be full. You're not going to get financial aid in time. You got to get a 20 year old high school transcript from Massachusetts. Like all this stuff. Right. It's not going to work. And so I said, okay, cool. And I I took the step and I did the thing. And I ended up getting all five classes I wanted in the time frames I wanted them, all on the same campus. And so for a lot of people, they don't know what a big deal that is because Salt Lake Community College has campuses all over the place, Mm -hmm. right, from north to south. And a lot of times people are frustrated because they're having to drive here and there. So for you to get five classes on the same campus at the right times of – few weeks couple a week and a half two weeks before it was going to start no, it that's, was days yeah. at this point yeah, <laughs> it was like crazy yeah so what do you attribute that to it was a miracle it was it was that i was doing what i was supposed to be doing and the other part i left out of the story was that i had to explain to my boyfriend this whole idea <laughs> <laughs> and and his answer was well <laughs> that that was that basically was it. it, right? Well, and so, but but what he said was, he said, "Well, it sounds like you should take that step and start down that path. And if it's the right thing, it will work out. And if it doesn't work out, then it's not the right thing, and maybe it's a not yet." So you wow, got that's in. a pretty insightful response. Yeah, I married yeah. him. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that I'm just going to be honest. Edge, that right? normally doesn't happen on this podcast. <laughs> yeah, it's usually the opposite. Yeah. <laughs> normally at this point, this is where I got out of the relationship or what I did. The fact that you married him, this is going to be a different kind of podcast. So you got your five classes and you've got this newfound mission and you're off on it. Yeah, I'm off on it. And then I realized that, that I um, I want to – transfer to utah valley university but i did the same thing i did i had a week to do that Mm -hmm. and they told me i couldn't and then i did 
And it was the same story repeated itself. So what I ended up doing was getting a bachelor's degree in 28 months. Wow. That's quick. That's really fast. Yeah. Well, and that's half the time. That's yeah. the opposite of Tommy Boy. Yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. And how I did that was I figured out that I could take classes at Salt Lake Community College and at Utah Valley University and just transfer the credits. Mm-hmm. And so there was one summer that I did 19 credits in one block. Wow. That's and, a lot. And just did it, right? And I just got it done. And the reason I got it done was because I was on a mission. Mm-hmm. Like that was – nothing was stopping me. So so, so you got – you had this, uh, you know uh, – inspiration uh you wanted to make a life change you jump right in you know taking all the classes but then you really kicked it up to get it done so quickly so i'm guessing you really fell in love with or became enamored with what you were studying what was it about what you were studying that made you go full bore because that is for anybody who's gone to college they know that's a lot of school to do in a couple of years so so what made you so inspired? And don't forget, you're 37, 38 mm-hmm. at this time. Mm-hmm. You've got life experiences. You've got bills. You've got a boyfriend. You've got all this stuff. I mean, that, that that's a massive load. Yeah, it was a lot. And, and, and it all just got taken care of. Like, I don't have an explanation for it other than everything just worked out. Sometimes when you're in the flow, things do work out. But what, what was it that grabbed you about that field of study? I took a class called Ethics for the Helping Professions. And one of the assignments was to create our one thing. And the idea was that if, if, if you've got something hanging on your wall that you can look at that's going to help you through the hard days and, and keep you going, what is that? And so my one thing that I wrote the paper about, uh, what it said was, I will not allow families to suffer because I'm afraid. Mm. And what that what I meant by that was is that I had a lot of thoughts about like who am I? Who am I to think I can help anybody or affect anybody and you know it, it was all those negative inner voices that have that have done tons of therapy to get rid of. But that was what it was is that families are suffering. Families like mine need help and my own family needs help and there was a moment where my brother said to me I guess I'm glad I'm a drug addict because you will be able to help so many people wow and that brother died from the disease of addiction on the 12th day of my last semester of undergrad. Mm. And as he was leaving this earth, I just kept saying to him, you can go if you really have to go, like if you're really done, but you got to be my eyes in the sky. Like you cannot leave me (laughs) to do this work alone. And I was going to drop out of school. I had already applied to the MSW program at UVU, and I didn't want to because it wasn't cool enough or special enough or, or prestigious enough for my ego. And I was going to, to withdraw from classes because I needed to be perfect, and I could not maintain a 
under the circumstances I was in. Mm-hmm. And then I got a phone call from someone who said it was about a, it was like the day before I was going to go withdraw from school. And this person said, I should not be calling you, but I feel like I need to. I don't even know how I have your number, but I saw the, the list of people who have been admitted to the MSW program and your name is on it. If that person hadn't called me, I wouldn't be here right now. Wow. So that's another miracle. It's another example of that person listening to their intuition and doing the thing, even though they didn't know why. Like, that's a kind of a crazy thing to do, right? Mm-hmm. When you call this person, I don't know how I know them. I don't know how I have their number. Like, this person I had met briefly one time. But if they hadn't listened to their intuition, I wouldn't be here because I can pretty much guarantee I would have found the bottle and never got out. If I had stopped, if I had lost momentum, I wouldn't be here. Now, it sounds like, first of all, it's always sad for all of us to hear stories about losing a loved one to the disease of addiction. And so we're sorry to hear that. Thank you. Sounds like he made sort of a special connection with you and understood that somehow you re, you know, you dealing with his disease helped inspire you to go into this field of work. And so there was a special bond there. Yes. But I guess, was it losing him that made you lose hope that made you want to drop out of school? It was knowing that if I that if that that if my grief caused me to not get perfect grades, that that I would that I would not get into a, a good graduate program and and all of that. So I needed to be perfect so I could do this work right. Had that been your attitude about school up to that point? Perfection? Oh yeah. Like not only was I doing ridiculous amount of credits, I was doing them fairly perfectly. Mm-hmm. And wow. Every every piece of. Everything I wrote, everything I researched, all about families. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the little required public speaking class, every speech I gave was about addiction and families. And that was just my focus. And something in me knew that if I lost momentum, like, I would... Well, you were going to... You were grieving the loss yeah, of your brother, of course. Totally. Yeah. Was there a little bit of, I'm doing all this work to help out families and my brother is still suffering? Does that make sense? Yes. I mean, I mean that's that's got to be a, a heaviness Absolutely. that weighs upon you. It's like yeah. I'm trying to do all this stuff to help my family, and even though everything I'm doing, I I can't help him. I because I I don't know what to do, or you don't understand the disease, or or what's going on. Yeah, and that was like I felt helpless. So that was part of the drive to to learn as much as I could, as fast as I could. You you felt there was a clock on it. The, and there was. Yeah. Right, and the, and the, and there still is for for other people's families. Mm-hmm. There's, there's a clock on it. And so, but yeah, so that's, so that's how I ended up um, doing this work. But the rest of everything I do is follows that same pattern of just listen and do. And, and like a lot of stuff I do is kind of weird and sounds crazy to a lot of people, but it's working and it's happening. We're going to find out what she has heard and what she's doing coming up in just a few. You're listening to Project Recovery right here. 
Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Hey, welcome back to Project Recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. He's a clinical psychologist. Our guest today is Amy Hadfield. She's with Heart and House. How are you? Great. So Heart and House is kind of a collective of those who want to help out in the recovery world. In the healing world in general. So okay. it's not... It's not recovery specific. But you guys deal with some of that, and we're going to find out more about that at the end of the podcast. But you just got accepted as an MSW. Now, what is MSW? MSW is a Master of Social Work degree. So what I I had found out that I would be admitted to the program Mm -hmm. to have the opportunity to earn a master's degree in social work. But you just had another miracle, and uh, miracles seem to, to come plentiful to you. It seems that way. And you also often listen to what's inside of you. And so now you're in this master's program. And do you at this at this time have an idea of what you want to do with your life? Or are you still just getting as much information as you possibly can? Still gathering information. Um, and and I, what I realized pretty quickly is that everybody around me just wanted to be a therapist. And did you? Not really. I decided to go into social work because I wanted to make social change and I wanted to explore the the systems that I saw I, I want to say keeping people sick um, but I think that's a little harsh but um, particularly like family systems the criminal justice system um, I wanted to understand systems because I felt like that's how we change the world maybe if we change systems then we have less people needing therapy Mm -hmm. well and that's an interesting uh thing that a lot of people don't understand that mental health care workers we're often seen as working with one one person at a time or like a family group or a small group but the reality is a lot of people in social work uh or in psychology there's a degree called community psychology you can get a doctorate in where they, they target systems, and and the goal is to make wide-sweeping changes throughout communities via changing how systems work. So we've had a little bit of that here on the show, talking about you know even just having something like drug court. That was a tremendous change to the regular legal system where people get arrested for drug-related charges, and now they have this opportunity to kind of get into some treatment instead of just going into jail. And so um, that's interesting because we haven't had, I don't think anybody on the show that has said that was the reason that they got into that. So what did you find that to be like studying systems in our communities and how they work? Um, I think what I, I think what I realized is that 
we have to help individuals while we're helping the community, and that it's part like the community needs to co- come together to help the individuals. So it's really like this, like basically this goat rodeo where we're trying to figure out like who can do what, right? And it's if it if there was a solution, we'd know it already, right? And so. Um, So my focus was a lot on how do we teach families what's going on. So I learned about family life education and um, and but the reality was that the whole I don't think I want to be a therapist thing had there was a layer of I don't think I can be a therapist. So back to that negative self-talk. Is that what you're talking about? The negative self-talk, but also the grief. Right. How am I going to sit in a room? With somebody like who's triggering the crap out of me, right? Like mm-hmm. who I'm just like, no, you don't understand. You're going to die, right? So had you, I mean, you were super busy with school at the time your brother passed away. Uh, then you went right into a master's program, which is extremely busy. Do you feel like you just hadn't had time to do your own therapy around those issues? Right. And so, but I, and so I did get into therapy and I did a lot of my own work around it. And I still like I continue like um, I do a lot of my own work now. And but I think that was the biggest thing was was what I realized. And I had one particular client in my internship where I realized that not only could I help individuals, but that my story made me uniquely able to. Mm-hmm. Um, and that you had a better understanding, maybe a little insight. Well, a little insight, and then also like um, it's pretty easy to to judge me physically, and I found that out really quick being in an internship with people who were coming out of like incarceration and homelessness. Was that looking at me? How could I possibly understand anything that they were going through? Mm. Right, but. I did on a really deep level because I'd watched it for years, right? Someone actually asked me one time, is it weird living a double life? And I was like, what are you talking about? And it was a, a client in the in the outpatient treatment. And she said, well, like, I mean, how you are the Relief Society president and you hang out with us. So the Relief Society president would be like the, the leader in the the Women's Auxiliary Association yeah. in a church. But she, looking at me, she assumed that I was deeply religious and like on some kind of humanitarian mission to like, I don't know what. But Reach so, down these poor people right. that need help yeah. and you're above yeah. them. And so she was kind of judging you based on i mean her her projection onto you was you look like maybe somebody who has never been in this world doesn't understand anything about this and now you're just here trying to help us and so she was sort of zinging you a little bit right right she was trying to give you a hard time and and we know that about a lot of people who are who are in that place like you don't know me yeah i'm different (laughs) you don't understand you don't understand you can't ever understand me you can't help me well there is there's an assumption that in order to help someone and really to in order to understand someone you have to have also had what they had 
But the reality, the philosophy of that is flawed because you can't ever really know exactly what another person's experience was. You know, two alcoholics can sit and talk about similarities, but they don't. So you don't have to be a former addict. You don't have to be a drug addict. You don't have to be schizophrenic or have OCD in order to help people. But I do understand that you want to have somebody who at least can relate to you on some level. And I think she was feeling defensive probably and decide to take it out on you, huh? Right, totally. And so... <laughs> Which, as a yeah. therapist, you have to get used to. Right. Oh, oh yeah. yeah, I'm completely used to it now. Like, I'll just be everybody's It's hard at first, though, right? Like, oh, yeah. I, yeah. I remember those early days of working with people and having them, like, do that sort of thing, and you kind of walk out feeling like, well, gee, I'm just trying to help, you know? Yeah. Well, and as an intern, too, being like... Oh, internships are you know, the worst. Maybe I, maybe I do suck at this. Maybe, yeah, you know, yeah. like... Yeah. like Because as an intern... Like my biggest fear is like I'm going to break somebody. Like I don't really know how to do therapy yet, and I'm trying. You're and, learning, yeah. and I'm gonna I'm gonna break someone. So you're back there judging the systems and uh, trying to figure it out, and trying to figure out where you're going to use your talents. And you've noticed that some of the systems seem to be flawed, and you saw some real reasons for concern and change. So how do you start implementing what you see and what you can do? That I think was was kind of the struggle because I I was still kind of waiting to be like miraculously told the next step Mm -hmm. and it wasn't coming. And then I just like imagined up one day this, this building with like brick walls and exposed ductwork and all that. And I, I wrote like a whole business plan. I was like, this is what the world needs, right? Like we need a place where people can come together and, talk about important things, do trainings about important things. And so the heart and house became my world. And I, I had no interest in, in, in doing therapy necessarily one-on-one. So I had a supervisor. I have this job with I am recovery, which is an outpatient treatment center. And, and I'm not even counting my hours because I don't care about being a therapist all I care about is figuring out how to bring the community together to heal. Mm-hmm. Create a system. Mm-hmm. Create like a new system, like right. reimagining the delivery of this stuff so that there's space and time to actually heal and to have to to give people the opportunity to do the healing work within their own parameters. Like if people want to do a private practice one or two days a week, things like that, like give them the opportunity to. So you're talking about providing a different system for providers. We'll just say to provide their service, whatever it happens to be, as well as a different system for, um, you know, patrons of that to come in and say, I, I want to get educated or I want some help with something. So it's kind of a different system from both ends of the spectrum. Right. With a focus on community. But eventually you become a therapist. Oops. How did that happen? <laughs> so I got, um, I was doing clinical work um, at in the treatment world and I was kind of trudging through it because I felt like it was something I needed to do. Mm-hmm. But then about a year ago, I got tricked into going to this training in Tennessee. And I 
uh, when I when I say tricked, I mean somebody was like, "Hey, we should go to this training," and then the day before we left, they didn't go with me. Oh. They canceled, <laughs> and so I ended up alone, like thinking, "Like, oh, these are all really smart, really talented people that I'm going to be in this training with," and I'm like, not, and because I'm new at this, right? Like. Um, Despite the 4.0 and getting a bachelor's degree in two years. And a master's, and a master's, yeah, master's yeah, degree. Yeah, but yeah, right. I mean, it's, you know, you're faking still, it until you make it. Right. I get yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. But, but that's but, how powerful those negative self-talk totally. can be. Yeah. That's how powerful the, the stories can be. And so what the training was is in a therapy technique called psychodrama that like can best be described as we put on a little play and we talk to mm-hmm. parts of ourselves or our emotions. That's been around for a long time, psychodrama. It's 100 mm-hmm. years old this week. Yeah. Oh, this week. this year. This year, wow. Um, and, but people don't really use it. It's, or, a, psycho, it's a psychodynamic ter- yeah. um, technique, but it's, it is, I think actually, I'm hearing more and more about it recently. So I think it's sort of coming back around as, being seen as pretty useful and you must have liked it definitely and and i hadn't really had any experience with it but what ended up happening was that by the end of the training the trainers were like this is your jam and i was like you know i think it is my jam like i love it and i love that it's embodied and i love that i don't have to sit still for it and i love that more than anything, it works because it worked for me. So I just was like, okay, that training, like I'm going to another training next month, like off to the races, right? Like, the, like this is what I'm doing now. And so because the, the methods are embodied, it allows us to get Explain to the listeners what you mean by yeah, because I'm lost. So when I when when I sit in therapy because I go to talk therapy, so so I just tell things whatever's in my brain, I tell to my therapist, and then we we sort it out. So and it's a verbal. It's experience, a lot, right? right? Yeah. And so with psychodrama, we're standing up, we're really like acting out. I take on the role maybe of my own fear. Or and I speak as my fear, so maybe I'm like, I'm just trying to help here. I being scared keeps you safe. Like you don't do anything adventurous, you're never going to break a bone again, right? And and then I can have that conversation with 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 my fear about, well, yeah, but I, I want to be able to do adventurous things, you know, and and process it that way rather mm-hmm. than rather than in my head. So basically, the idea is that we want to get out of my head. And into my body. And I think why we've been hearing more about psychodrama in the last few years is because in the book, The Body Keeps the Score, it's mentioned as an effective trauma treatment. Mm. And so, but, so what I was able to do was process a bunch of stuff about all those negative beliefs that, that kept me from, from being seen and, and being a, a therapist and and really like allowing myself to to do things like be here because i would have talked myself out of this in a second a year ago but you're here and you're sharing your story so as a therapist do you feel like you work mostly with addicts or those in the recovery world yeah primarily some of them some of them don't identify but they come to me because they can't stop drinking Mm. 
or or using drugs or whatever, but a lot of them don't. Do you think it's important to identify as an alcoholic in order to get over alcoholism, or do you think a person can conceptualize themselves differently? That feels like a really loaded question, um, but I like it. And the answer is that um, I, it's not my business how anybody identifies themselves. And I could do a whole episode on why, you know, diagnosis is one thing and, you know, labels and labels and all that. And the, and the reality is, is that um, I see I see the labels cause a lot of harm. And I see the labels become security blankets for people like, oh, I can't do that. I'm, I'm an addict or I'm an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. But it's not just the people labeling themselves that. It's the people around them labeling them that. See, right there, that was the biggest problem with me having to say I was an alcoholic mm-hmm. is because I felt like I went okay with it. And there's a lot of people in my circle now that have known me longer sober than ever knew I even drank. But I always wondered if I was an alcoholic that any time we were at a family gathering or a business meeting or whatever, there's going to be side conversation about don't have that because he's an alcoholic. You know what I mean? That they were judging me different. And and, and that was one of the – And I know you really didn't – that was a conversation you had with friends and family right after you got out. I was like, I don't want you to treat me any different. Uh, I mean, I, I got sober to live, not hide. And I think what you're saying uh, is that there are a lot of people who use that as a safety blanket, keep themselves from living because they're afraid to go out and do things. Now, I'm not going to tell you to do or not to do because it's your recovery and whatever makes sense and keeps you sober, you do that. But, but for me, I can't. I, I didn't want to do that. Right. And that's and it's that's exactly what it is, is that it becomes like, oh, I I can't socialize. I can't go out to dinner. Can't date. Can't date. How am I going to explain that one, right? And all, and all of that. Um, and and but the the bigger piece for me with the label is how I see family members using those labels. And and so here's an example. So in a in like Facebook groups for families of addicts and alcoholics, they they refer to their children as my addict son or my addict daughter or my not addict non-addict son or my non-addict daughter and then they and then they uh go one step further and they abbreviate it so my ad is my addict daughter oh interesting right and 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 my ass (laughs) right my addict son (laughs) (laughs) which 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 could could apply (laughs) let's be honest but but so so the family is no longer seeing the person as who they are they're seeing them as as the label the label the disease yeah so 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 you know like Mm -hmm. my addict in my case you know my addict brothers on one again right like and and rather than being like this is a person who's struggling and i think that decreases empathy absolutely right when when we start to label people and see them as a construct instead of the person that they are then then our empathy for them goes down. And totally. That's been done in horrible ways with propaganda throughout the world and throughout history. And I think, unfortunately, we often do it unwittingly, uh, even in healthcare, where um, I, I think diagnoses that are properly done can lead to effective treatments, but we don't want to think of the person as the diagnosis, in my opinion, because that creates a barrier between you and the individual who's getting help from you. 
and 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 decreases your empathy as a provider. So, yeah, I agree with you that that's um, that's a that's an unfortunate thing happening uh, in in the recovery world. Yeah. So therapy with you looks different. Uh, yeah. than what most people would assume. Mm-hmm. And you even so, told me that walking in. What are some of the other things that you do? So I do pretty much all experiential therapy. So I mentioned psychodrama, but then um, there's sociometry. I love group psychotherapy. I think groups are groups are my favorite. Like I could do groups day in and day out all day long and never get tired. Um, and then, but also we have like expressive arts, I love sand tray, which is uh, basically a way to make a picture and then talk about what's going on in the picture so we don't necessarily have to talk about what's going on in our lives. Mm. And I've seen that be incredibly helpful. I had a client in residential treatment who was, we would call him treatment resistant, um, just not able to access because so much trauma. And and he was there like for a few weeks and, and every note I wrote was basically like not able to access emotions, maybe not even appropriate for this level of care, like may need a higher level of, of psychiatric intervention um, because, of, because of this person's issues. And so one day I brought a bunch of toys and I laid the toys out on the floor and he picked up this figurine. Of like an old man, like to me, it looked like the Gordon's fisherman, like on the fish sticks box. Mm-hmm. And he told me this, this toy's story. And he told me everything that this man had been through and all of the loss and all of the trauma and all of the, 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 the military combat trauma and traumatic brain injury and all of the stuff that this guy, this figurine had gone through. And it was his story. Mm. But he would not tell me his story. But it was really once he once he could tell it about something else. That's interesting. That's when his work began. Did that open a gateway to him being able to be more open about his own story? Absolutely. Yeah. And so that's when he was able to start doing his therapeutic work and addressing, you know, all of the core beliefs and, and building on coping skills and all the things that we hope for in therapy. But he had to say something was wrong first. And and that's an interesting point you're bringing up that is sort of a an assumption that we make when we talk about like cognitive therapy or any sort of talk-based therapy is we're making an assumption that a person is emotionally capable of of accessing their their own stuff and talking about it in a coherent manner. But because of trauma uh, that a lot of people carry with them throughout their lives, they're really not capable. It's not that they're not trying. And so it creates this tremendous vulnerability and defensiveness. And they're, even if they kind of want to, they, they can't really open up and talk about it. So experiential therapies have a lot of value because it's sort of a way of skirting that. You don't have to be so direct and you can use things like projection, projective identification, and you know you, he's seeing himself in this, you know, uh, figurine. Or uh, we see it a lot with kids and play therapy and and uh, art based therapies. And so that's that's wonderful for people that feel sort of uh, you know the idea of sitting down and trying to tell their story is overwhelming, and they know they can't do it. There are other therapies out there. That that right. there are other options that could help you have that cathartic experience and relief 
of the 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 trauma you're carrying with you, which right. it seems very beneficial and very motivating. What other kind of uh, therapies and things go on at Heart and House? Um, well, you mentioned kids and and play therapy things. People see my stuff all the time and and ask me if I do if I work with kids, and the answer is no. Like, <laughs> and I say inner ones. Um, but so Heart and House currently has we have four different independent. Therapy practices, and they all have different specialties. Where the one's a Jungian analyst, one is a um, like one deals with emotion focused therapy. One is a specialist with eating disorders. One is a specialist with adolescence, and then we have um, a, three dietitians that work together. We have a pair of pelvic floor physical therapists. We have some Reiki providers and life coaches, and they all um, share the space. Some of them are there permanent full-time in their own offices, and some of them share space. So there may be um, a dietitian in in an office for half the day and then a therapist in the office for the other half of the day. Well, it sounds like a wonderful place. If people want more information about Heart and House, where do they go? To heartandhouse.com. Do you want to spell it for him, Casey? Uh, H-E-A-R-T-E-N-H-O-U-S-E. Well done, Casey. Dot com. But this is, I think the only problem I see with this is that it's above Caputo's, right? And so like the the smells, you just be hungry all the time, (laughs) smelling the the food downstairs. Dr. Matt can't smell. Yeah, yeah, I actually can't smell, but I can imagine that would be very distracting. I'm joking. We don't get that. We don't get the smells, but like that is, that was actually one of the things because I saw the space in my head a year before I set foot in it. And when I was talking to Tony Caputo about the space, one of the things he said was, well, there's a fish market there and kind of like there's trucks backing up all day, delivering our stuff. It kind of smells like fish. And I said, Tony, if I wanted to be in a Mm -hmm. sterile strip mall, I'd be in a sterile strip mall. Like I want the urban area. I I love the energy of that space. And I'm thinking you go up there, you get your therapy, then you go downstairs to the deli, you get a big sandwich. I mean, that's a good day right there. Therapy and a sandwich. Therapy and a sandwich, Which is what a lot of people do. I have clients from northern Utah who basically come down to make a day of it. (laughs) Right. There you go. Well, I'm so glad. So how are things going for you now? And how about the family members? Are they still battling with addiction? Is everything going okay? Um, not my story to tell, but I think that people are doing their best. I love it. Yeah. Well, we appreciate you coming on the show today. I think it's tremendously helpful for people to understand that there are a lot of different, what, Casey? Ways up Sober Mountain. There are a lot of different ways up Sober Mountain, and I would throw Mental Health Mountain on there as well. Like, in order to be your best self, to work through your trauma, to grow and develop, I mean, go in and see a Jungian analyst. You, there aren't too many of them here. I don't even know what that is. Salt Lake. Well, we'll explain it off air. But, like, that's a tremendous opportunity for people to go in and work on themselves. And especially because a lot of people, I do talk therapy. I do cognitive behavioral therapy. I've, I've run a lot of groups. I love groups as well. But that's sort of my thing. But there are a lot of people that, that just sitting down and talking just one-on-one, that doesn't feel comfortable. It's not a real easy way for them to access the things that they need to work on. And so having a place where you can go and have uh, opportunities for experiential therapies, I think that's tremendous. So I didn't even know that you guys were there. So I think I'm going to go get a sandwich 
and uh, stop in and, and see what you guys are doing. Do. Text me and I'll come out of my little back office and, and meet you and show you around. That would be great. Well, Amy, thank you very much, and thank you to everybody for stopping by and listening to another episode of Project Recovery. In case you forgot, I hope you didn't, it's brought to you by our friends at knowyourscript.org. And one more thing, Project Recovery is what? It's a KSL podcast. You got it. of this program are for informational purposes only. The program is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician, licensed therapist, or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you've heard on this program. KSL does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on the program. Reliance on any information provided on the program is solely at your own risk. A gun in the face. Then all of a sudden they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. Started two years of horror for an American in Venezuela. They said, you need to... Give us your phone and get ready because you're coming with us. I'm Becky Bruce, and I spent a year researching and piecing together Josh and Tammy Holt's story about their ordeal in a notorious prison. That's when everything started to turn bad. We had another pound on the door. Boom, boom, boom. And there was the police once again. You can binge all of the episodes of Hope in Darkness on kslpodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.